0: Sterling coming at you. Thanks for checking us out. I recently had the privilege of attending a cardiac symposium in which there were many topics of discussion related to the healthcare, in particular with cardiac. And one of the teachers there was a gentleman named Quentin Studer, who many of you might be familiar with um, at this symposium. It was my first introduction to him. Thoroughly enjoyed him and his uh, talk there at the symposium. And I just wanted to share uh, this idea that he talked about of cultivating a culture of change and how necessary that is, because all things change. And if we were to be prepped in advance, uh, understanding that change is necessary and taught that from a young age, that we would be able to adapt more readily, more successfully. And so, I wanted to share this and get this out to you guys. I hope it blesses you. Thanks for listening. Catch you on the flip side.
1: Ladies have delivered a child, their own child. Aren't you glad you had a little instruction beforehand? Because <laughs> that's a change process. That's a change process. You know, my wife and I went to all these baby and eat classes. You know, they they told us some stuff, but they didn't tell us some some stuff stuff. <laughs> you know what I mean? But they walk through. You're going to be dilated to here. When you're dilated to here, you're going to feel like this. And then you're going to feel like that. And then you're going to feel like this. It, it's still painful, though. Even if you understand it. You know, I was watching this show called Maternity War one time. And, and this lady's having this baby. And she's been in labor, like, for a long time. And she all of a sudden tells the nurse, I'm done. I'm not having this baby. And they said, sort of, oh, yes, you are here. But, but the reality is then they coach, they teach, but they've explained it. Anybody here and I have not run like a long marathon? And, and what you do is you get coaching. And you get coaching and they tell you what you're going to go through. And they warn you about something called a wall. Anybody hear a wall when you're on a marathon? And when you, you hit that wall and it's painful,
0: it's hard. But you know you can get through it, and when you get through it, because you've been
1: coached and trained. So one of the things I think healthcare is missing drastically, and maybe your organization is different, is taking people through change. How it works, how you feel. I can't do justice here in a half hour, but I will talk a little bit about it. And I really would encourage you, if you work in a healthcare organization, or if you're an executive at David's healthcare, to think about offering a course on change. We offer one when we change the new software program. We offer one when we come up with a new way to build. We, we offer one when we do a new way of coding. Yet those things are tactics that we will learn. So here's what we learn: High performers struggle with change more than anyone else in an organization. And when your high performers struggle with change, that means everyone struggles. Because people look at the high performers. And if high performers have a rough time with it, that means it's okay for me to have a rough time with it. Because the high performer is a role model. The high performer is the one that people look at. And even if you don't see yourself as a high performer, you're probably, if you're you're a high performer. The other, I'm gonna have one suggestion to you. Please write a thank you note to your supervisor who made it possible for you to be here. In my book, Hardwine Excellence, I talk about values. And I tell people, you can tell the value of an organization and how much they invest in training and development. Because as soon as the finances get tough in some organization, what's the first thing they stop? Education and training. It's sort of interesting. And then they say, no travel. No travel. We're dumb, and we're staying that way. (laughs) We can't get results, so we're not sending anyone to figure out how to get better results. So if we look at the deal, if we can accept the fact that healthcare is going to continue to get tougher, continue to change, then the skill set we currently have will not help us get there unless we're changing with it. But if we don't train people on change, we don't train people on skill set. So at Studer Group, we would not work with an organization that would not commit to 64 hours of management and leadership training per year. Because if you're not willing to train people or professionally develop them, then it's not going to make it. So if you work for an organization today, you already work for a value-driven organization. If you work for somebody who sent you here, you work for a place that's already pretty good. So let me explain. Ninety-two percent of people will change or adjust their behavior based on what's being rewarded and recognized. So you can actually get your boss to work for you. Reward and recognize the thing your boss does that you like, and they will even do it more. Now, here's my tip. At the end of today or tomorrow, write whoever your boss is a note. Thank them for sending you here. Thank them for investing in you, because that's what this is. This isn't a donation on their part. This is an investment, but even more, tell them one thing that you're gonna do differently based on your day, and there's only one. Let me give you another thing. Don't get, there's so many great things. I looked at the agenda. It's so easy to be overwhelmed, and research by Franklin Covey shows if we try to change one or two behaviors, we have about a 90% plus chance of being successful. If we try to change three, it drops down to 50. Four drops down in the 20s, five that's in the teens, and six that's 8%. We used to do two day seminars and people walk out. I said, What are you going to do in the league? I'm going to round, I'm going to change how I interview, I'm going to make some pre phone calls, some post phone calls, I'm going to do some keywords, and I'm going to fire three people. You haven't fired anyone in 12 years here? So, so tell your boss one thing that you're going to either do more of, do less of, what start to do? Because your boss invested in you. And if you show them that when you leave training, that the investment was wise, they will continue to send you for more training. They will continue to understand why training is important. So that would be my strong recommendation. And by the way, do not think that when you send a thank you note to your boss, they're gonna they get so many of them it's not gonna mean anything. Have you ever gone into your boss's office and you can't see them because all the thank you notes on their desk. It just doesn't happen. What we normally bring to our boss is our problems, not our solution. High performers bring solutions. So we're going to talk about burnout a little bit. I was a little concerned. I wrote this book years ago. I knew I was exiting healthcare. I was selling my company and I knew I wouldn't be able to work in healthcare. I have a five year non-compete. Like I can't even do healthcare on Mars. Anyway, um, And I'm in my fourth year of it now, and, um, but I do have a little caveat that if it's in Santa Rosa or Scambia County, I have freedom to do certain things, so when they asked me to speak, I'm actually supposed to be in Rancho Raj, California today, because I'm on the board of Betty Ford um, Drug and Alcohol Treatment Center, but I passed the board meeting up today because I wanted to be here, but I wrote a book called Healing Physician Burnout because I thought that was the silent killer of health care six, seven years ago, because if we People are going to go into healthcare, what does that
0: do?
1: Now, I know many weren't surgeons, surgeons but, but let me give you a startling a data point 75% of cardiovascular surgeons in the, the United States, States, States of America are over the age of 55. 50. So, we're going to have some major change in healthcare. We're going to see some consolidation of healthcare services because you just can't do it anymore. I'm on the board of Tri Health up in Cincinnati, Ohio, at Bethesda Hospital in Good Sam. They have two heart programs in both, and they've now merged into one. And why they merged into one? Because they couldn't find cardiovascular surgeons to do two. So we're in a tough road right now for the future if we don't figure out how to get people to go into healthcare, whether you're a nurse, whether you're a pulmonologist, no matter what it is, we've got to get people here. And the people that are here are the ones that are going to recruit the new ones. One, one time, time in like one of like my seven seminars, years. I had a nurse manager come up to me and she said, "Quit! what can I do? She said, I work in the toughest nursing unit in the entire hospital. We're short-staffed. No one wants to work in our unit. Nobody wants... You ever notice every nursing unit thinks they're the hardest-working nursing unit in the whole place? <laughs> uh, and they should get paid a little more than the other nurses anyway because of what they do. Anyway, so she She said, what can I do to get people to work work on my unit? I said, you gotta shut up. (laughs) (laughs) My God, I don't want to work work on your unit. (laughs) (laughs) You gotta sit down and say, hey guys, we gotta figure out how we can recruit people here, but we're the word of mouth. So how do we go out and make this a better place so we can feel pretty good about going to another place? Back here, I was with the chief medical officer years ago, in, in Hershey, Pennsylvania, Penn State, and I asked the doctor about, he's working all the time, and he talked about his wife and his three children, who are adult children now. And I said, that had to be hard on you. He said, yeah, but but my, my wife was great. He said, the whole time I was gone, my wife told my three children what I was doing, the difference I was making, the impact that I had. I said, what do your children do now? He said, they're all three physicians. They did not see this as a profession that you're never old. They saw this as a profession that, that we made the difference. You are tremendous word of mouth for your industry and in your current employer. When I was at Baptist Healthcare, I met with all the nurses in nurse orientation, and I, I, I sort of had fun with them. I'd say, your last hospital you were at, CEO we met with all the, the nurses. nurses, what did he say or she say? They said, well, he didn't meet with us, I said, see. Anyway, so, <laughs> right? yeah. I said, where did you work before here? And the nurse actually said, um, well, I came, I came to office because my next-door neighbor's a nurse. And I said, oh, cool, do they work here? They said, no, oh, they work in another like, place, but they said they, I, they said they had to do it all over the they again, they'd come here. Mm-hmm. You are, whether you're at Sacred Heart, whether you're at Santa Rosa, whether you're, Rosa, whether you're USA, no matter where you are, you are the walking... Face of your healthcare organization. And don't, under, don't underestimate the difference that you make and the impact you have. Liz Jaswick's a friend of mine. She told me the story that uh, she's a speaker in healthcare, a nurse told her. And the nurse went to kindergarten. Um, her kid was in kindergarten, so they had like care open house. And the nurse um, sat down, you know, you sit down on these little desks and chairs, and, and the woman looked at her and said, I have a picture of you in my wallet. Now, she was a little scared at that to start off with. And then she explained that her baby was premature, but she wanted a picture of the baby because she thought the baby might not live. And then she basically asked the nurse to, in the in incubator to sort of move the baby so she'd take a picture of the baby. And that nurse was the one in the picture. Don't underestimate the difference you make in people's lives. You make it each and every day, even if they don't tell you, even if they don't find you. So we know burnout matters. We know we have to be on top of our game. So so I'm not going to go into this detail because of time, because you're smart people. Um, Because this book's a little different than most of my books, there's 72 pages of research for doctors, because this was written mainly for doctors, to show them the impact of burnout on clinical outcomes. Because that's really the impact we're talking about. If I can connect something to clinical outcomes, I connect to your values. If I connect to your values, you cannot not do it. You know what I'm trying to say? When I was at Baptist Healthcare, we had these standards of behavior. And you had to pick up paper. You know, you couldn't walk by it. And I'm Catholic, so guilt shame is very powerful in my life. <laughs> and, 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 and I remember one time I'm working at Baptist and 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 I pull up at like McDonald's Drive. And somebody had thrown a bag on a bush. And I'm thinking, oh, that's terrible. They should not have thrown that bag on that bush. They should have put it in the trash can. But I look like crud. It's morning. It's a Saturday. I just went to, like, drive through McDonald's. So why am I driving through? Because I want no one to see. me. So I'm sitting there judging the person who threw it out there. But I'm not thinking I'm going to go get it. And then all of a sudden a car pulls up behind me. Ugh. They, they know, know
0: that I
1: saw can. that <laughs> <laughs> Do they recognize me? Because I might have to do it. And then I start looking for the Baptist Hospital parking gal. <laughs> thinking if I work for Baptist, I know i got to do it. Because will <laughs> tell on it. But then that guilt shame came and I opened the door and I went and it and threw it out. Because it connected to my alley. Working with a number of nurses years ago, the healthcare system said to me, well, the reason we're not getting good outcomes is because we're short-staffed. The reason we're not getting good outcomes is because we have too much manager turnover. So I met with the nurses. And I gave them some clinical things. And I said, so, if you know that when you did this with the patient, you would improve the clinical outcome, would you do it? They said, absolutely. I said, what if you're short-staffed? they looked at me, so? If it's gonna impact the clinical outcome of a patient, we will do it. What if you have management turnover? We'll do it. So to get change, it's about tying it back to the values of the person. And once we tie it back to clinical outcomes, you cannot not do it. Does that make sense? You just cannot not do it. So, what you're gonna move this a little bit here. So, physical and <laughs> emotional exhaustion. I can't keep going on like this. Depersonalization. My patients are. We quit calling them names. You know, if you read my book, Card My I, I lost my values in healthcare. I, I got, I got lost. I got a born-again healthcare administrator one time. You know, I just got lost. I got into healthcare for the same reasons you got into healthcare. I got into help people with drug and alcohol problems, redo their lives. That's why I had a healthcare 35-day drug and alcohol treatment program. And then i get getting promoted, and the more I got promoted, the more cost I the became. Now, you don't have to worry about that, because your administrators would never be like that. But I sort of got, like, um, I quit calling people people. I quit calling employees employees. I called <laughs> them FTs. You know, that word <laughs> F T. Yeah. Um, you know, I quit calling patients patients. I called them cost for adjusted occupied bed. <laughs> uh, you know, I didn't talk about how sick with you, what was your, you know, indexed. <laughs> and, and I couldn't I, I even use people words. And then, of course, three my book in 1990, um, three of my life changed because of an experience I had with a person who had lost their father. And as he explained to me, had the nurse had on that guy, and I knew that nurse. I realized my job was to make that nurse's life a little bit better. So we can get them personalized. We reduce sense of our personal accomplishment. We miss how important we are, how vital we are. And what's the use that's not going to change anyway? So what's the external environment that impacts this? Well, we always have a change in payment system. And, and I tell people all the time when they somehow, you know, we're so much smarter now. In the old days, we used to have all our employees send postcards to the government. We bring them in and they do postcards to the government telling them not to cut our funding. That's had a big impact, hasn't it? (laughs) The only people that like that was the postal service. Anyway, you know, I tell people all the time, if you want to know the best thing you can do about the payment system, put the serenity prayer in your office. Because there's some things you cannot change, the wisdom to know the difference. We have changes in technology, and in my book I will show you that the more money a healthcare organization spends on technology, ironically, the more burnout there is because it's that transition to adjust to the new technology. Anybody here deal with the electronic medical record system and all? <laughs> uh, are all you saying, oh my God, when it's beautiful, it reminds me of my last cruise, my heart's beating, and <laughs> oh God, it's great. How about doctors? How do they like the change? Yeah.
0: Have you ever had a doctor
1: say uh, to the administrator, can I talk to you in a minute? First of all, I want to thank you. I know you spent millions of dollars putting this into an electronic health record. And I know that it's going to make my life better. But I'm just going through a little bit of creative tension right now. And I know it's just the fact that I don't have a lot of experience in this. But by me just understanding I'm going to get worse before to get better, really working hard and adjusting to this change, that eventually I'm going to be very, very grateful. And I just want to thank you for your investment. <laughs> or do they say, who's the moron? <laughs> it is even worse, not
0: better.
1: That's the change in technology. Then we got the change in employment. 75% of cardiovascular cardiologists are employed in some way or not. When most physicians went to medical school and they asked them what they wanted to do, it wasn't being a W-2 employee. It was having a different type of autonomy that they currently and we've got to be real, real careful because we get judging doctors on their RVUs more than we judge them on the clinical impact they're having with the patient sometimes. When my sister was dying of cancer at the Moffitt Cancer Center, they were putting in a new electronic health record. And the doctor at 9 o'clock was just exhausted and told me they were so discouraged because they never worked harder in their life. But if you look at their documentation, it looks like they worked less not more because they're being evaluated in RVUs. What I love about African healthcare in Chicago when they put in electronic chronic health record, they changed the RVU requirements for the next six months and told the doctors they knew they were gonna be an adjustment period. Sometimes though we can't change what's happening, we can let people know we have the empathy for what's happening. We let people know we have the understanding for what's happening and there's a change in structure. There's a change in where this thing is going. Um, you know, we spent a lot of years with Cleveland Clinic. One of my people I admire more than anybody who's passed away now is Fred Loop. Fred Hoop was a cardiovascular surgeon that saved Cleveland Clinic. Cleveland Clinic at one time was going broke, it was going bankrupt, they didn't know what to do, and at a board meeting they turned to a cardiovascular surgeon who had never run anything like this in his life, and they said, We need you to be the next CEO. He said, But I want to do hearts. So they said, You gotta be an administrator. So that year he only did 350 open hearts. And he changed it because he ran the healthcare system like he ran an OR. Well run, efficient, effective, and he always had his people know how vital they were to him. But they also saw it differently. They saw the hospital beds as just a department, not the center of the universe. And as we go through this, life's going to change. Telemedicine is going to change. Telehealth is going to change. So our structures are going to continue to change and continue to move. So here's where we go. Life is like a flywheel. And it's hard to start when change, but it works. The first thing is passion. Every one of you walked in with passion. You want to see passionate people? Go to new employee orientation. How many new doctors are here? Medical school? Okay, I'm going to get it. Awesome. I would never, never get, get back on <laughs> Okay. How, how long have you been in medical school? a uh, year oh, now. year now? Okay. Right, here, here. I'm not going to hurt you. You're okay. Would you like to Okay. Anyway. Do you remember when you first got accepted to medical school? Exciting? Oh, big, 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 big.
0: You know what the best day
1: in medical school is? We get the white lab coat. Remember the white lab coat? Family, its like getting pinned to be a pilot. You know, families come down. We get the white lab coat. It's a cool, cool experience, and that is the last good experience we have. <laughs> it is starts going downhill at that moment, okay? Doesn't it? <laughs> We're gonna talk quiet here in a little bit. So. The, how do we t- suck the passion out of people in healthcare? Because we assume that they're always going to have it, so we suck it out because we're looking for what's wrong instead of what's right. In healthcare, we are trained to look at symptoms, disease, illness, and so on. I used to tell CFOs, chief financial officers, when I'm the hospital president, they'd run in and tell me about the department that's over on expenses. i said, can you tell me the ones that, like, aren't for a while? Can we start off on a little bit on the positive side here? Because you're going to wear me out if it's always negative. How many of you right now, if you got a text, a text from your supervisor at break, and by the way, thank you for not looking at your phone while I'm speaking, um, doctor. Anyway, so, so anyway, um, the, re- the reality is, if you've got a note from your um, supervisor right now, and it said, please call me at the next break. Is your first thought? More reward and recognition? <laughs> <laughs> and they just let me go for one day without complimenting me.
0: <laughs> <laughs> we do have to doctors all
1: the time too. Oh God, we do that doctors. You're an administrator, you're in a department, and you say, Doctor, I need to talk to you, they know it's probably bad. So they start coming up with reasons why they can't stay. <laughs> oh, I'd like to, but i got to run right now. I'll be back. If you want to stop a doctor in their tracks, you just say to them, okay, I just wanted to pass along some compliments. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> you will out of breath before they run out of time. Because <laughs> they're not used to it. And not care. care. it? It takes, takes three positives, one criticism for someone to keep their passion. So, how are you in putting out positives, or are you more negative? Make sure that you give out three positives at every negative. Because in healthcare, we're more geared gear on what's wrong than what's right. If the reason your manager's not coming on your unit anymore is because you wore yeah. them out,
0: they, they open the door and
1: you tell them what's wrong. It's, it's very right. Re- <laughs> I, I talk to supervisors all the time. I said, i you ever had an employee come up to you and say, I just want to tell you, staffing is great, everybody's working well together. Yeah. The physicians are a joy to work with. All, All the, the systems are going to be lucky, lucky, lucky. lucky.
0: lucky.
1: <laughs> and I just want to tell you the temperature's good. <laughs> <laughs> not too hot, not too cold. you don't want to mess up somebody's life, call facilities. Just call these people and just tell them temperature's good today. <laughs>
0: no,
1: nah, they're going to be checking pharmaceuticals right away. <laughs> So we got this passion. We got to look at what's right. So what comes next is work skills and culture. Because we have great passion, but we're not in a good work environment. Our passion's going to eventually be eroded. The systems aren't going to work. Tools and equipment aren't going to be there. I feel so bad for healthcare administrators that work in financially strapped healthcare systems. Because trust me, they want to get people the equipment they need. But sometimes they have to say, we don't have the money to get it, and they wish they didn't have. couldn't say that. So next is work skills and culture. So what I'd like you to walk out of here when I'm done is feeling a little bit better about what you do than when you came in. And I'd like you to feel a little bit better about your old work skills. Because the way to reduce
0: burnout
1: is to have a better place to work and have a more effective organization to work in and have better skills to do it. Because then we get the outcome. When we get the outcomes, it's a difference. I was with Fred friend, Luke, one day. He called a fella because he would call heart patients he'd operated on and wish them happy birthday. He called a person that he'd operated on 30 years before to say happy birthday. Pretty cool, isn't it? And what is he thinking in the meantime? You might not be alive if I hadn't operated on you. And this guy got a chance to tell Fred Luke thank you for these last 30 years. Because of you, I can be a better person. I can be there for my children and my grandchildren. So let's talk now as we wrap up a little bit about change. There's four phases of change. Doctors, you don't remember when you got that white lab coat? What phase you were in? You were unconsciously unskilled. (laughs) You had no idea what you didn't know. And then very quickly in medical school, we jammed right into consciously unskilled. (laughs) We do that to employees, 27% of employees quit within the first 90 days of work. Why? Because we don't do a good job onboarding. We don't do a good job precepting. We don't do a good enough job telling them this is hard. Because they look at us and it looks easy because we've been doing it 8 years, 10 years, 5 years, and they feel worse, not better. So what happens is when you get to that phase of consciously unskilled, what solves it? Mentorship, preceptorship, buddy systems, and conversations saying, I know you can do it, and what you're going through is normal. Think about the, having the baby. When you dilate to six or seven and you're in pain, the nurse doesn't say, Whoa, you think it's bad now? Just wait. The nurse doesn't say, I don't know if you're going to be able to do this. Personally, they had, I don't know. They walk people through that they can do it. And because of that, coaching, we do it. And then we move to consciously skilled. The
0: consciously skilled phase of change is this. We go to the consciously skilled phase of change,
1: and we basically um, know what we're doing, but it takes a long time because we haven't done it a lot. That's why the electronic health record is so hard, because we know we got to do it, but it doesn't come naturally. What's the fourth phase of change? Is unconsciously skilled. So why do high performers struggle the most with change? Because they're unconsciously skilled. They do it easy, they do it multi and they're very effective and very efficient. So life is good, and it'd stay good if there wasn't any change. But what happens to the high performer when there's change? See, the person that's new, they haven't gotten in the habit the old way. So when there's change, they can adjust quite, quite quickly when you go in a health organization and a manager's never hired anyone in their life, and you tell them we're gonna use behavioral-based interviewing, we're gonna do peer interviewing, they say, phew, I'm glad we have a system. The one that's learning how to interview, adjust quickly, to consciously skilled, the manager that's hired for 30 years and never used their peers say, why? I've done a pretty good job, why should I change? So let me tell you what happens to this group. This group goes back to consciously unskilled. But they don't understand it's normal, so they push back because they'd like to go back to the old way. Now, many times, most of us can't change. We can't say we don't like the new way they say, okay, we'll just change the new electronic health care system. We can't say we don't like the way reimbursement's going, so the government's not going to say, all right, we'll do a little something different for you. Um, You know, it's just not going to happen. So what
0: happens
1: is we push back on the change. When we push back on the change, the high performer doesn't like being unskilled. So we've got to have empathy for the high performer. We've got to tell them it's normal, but we've got to let them know that their role modeling change. When the high performer pushes back, that puts us in big, big trouble. So as a high performer, you're going to have the same difficulty and more because you're going to be slower, less effective, less efficient. So we have to understand the adjustment and the transition period of change. I write a lot about this in books and so on. So the tips is to always measure and to focus on what the challenge is, fix it, but make sure you follow up and learn from others. And we're going to talk about that as I finish. But we want I guess we're going to do after a little quiz now. On a scale of one through five, get your phones out. Right, how well does your organization create a good place for you to work and provide care? can a plan music for that. Just for that. That's do. I, can I can go. go. <laughs> <laughs> Yours is just as good. If I go to an airport and there's a lot of delays, okay, I can go in my chair and TM, but wouldn't it be better if there weren't delays? If I'm a doctor the and the OR is starting late, and now i got, got a mm-hmm. load of people in my clinic going to be mad at me because I'm running late, and, and the, the OR shouldn't, shouldn't be running late, I can go in the surgeon's lounge and be more mindful. If I'm a a person and I'm searching for a wheelchair because we don't have enough or they're hidden somewhere, you know, because people cord things, um, wouldn't it be better if I just had the piece of equipment? So you're lucky to work in an organization. So I think there's organizational responsibility, but there's also an individual responsibility. And I think for too long with burnout, we've looked upon the individual, and we've given ourselves a a buy on looking at what we do. So in most of my work, most of my books, I say burnout is a collaborative solution.
0: Because
1: so what can we do as an individual and what can we do as an organization? As an individual, we can look at what's right. When I go to an organization, the first thing I do is have the people get in small groups, and I talk to them, about well, why did you pick the profession you're in? And I go around the I became a this, I became a that, I became a physician assistant because of this, I became because of that. And then I say, okay, so now you could have done that anywhere. So why do you do it where you're currently working? And they go around the table again, and by the time we're done, they feel a little bit better about what they do. Because we've got to be careful. I would also suggest you change the words that I have to do to get to do. When once you change have to get, life changes unbelievably. I don't have to come here to Sanders Beach to speak to you. I get to come here. Sanders Beach to speak to you. So let me close with how other organizations treat high performers. And I truly believe if we change our mindset a little bit, we can learn from other organizations. Now, he doesn't play with the Blue Wahoos anymore. He plays with the Cincinnati Reds. But that's Jesse Winker. Jesse Winker um, played with us about three, four years ago when I wrote the book. And let me tell you about Jesse. Jesse plays 130 games a year. So he has to go to early work 130 games a year. He, each time, he works for two hours and 45 minutes. Not consistently, because he gets to sit about half an hour on the bench. Okay, um, He might have six balls hit to him during a game, and he'll bat four times per, year, per game. But he's considered an important resource because the future of the organization is based on maximizing human performance. Isn't that the future of all of us? Maximizing human performance? Somebody take what Jesse Winker gets nutritionalist. He has a, a nutritionalist that works with him on how he should eat. In fact, we have to put in the locker room certain levels of food, and sometimes we can't. My sister when, had cancer, had pancreatic cancer. She had a Whipple procedure at Moffin Cancer Center, 13 and a half hour procedure by Pamela Hodel, the doctor, on a Friday night by eight o'clock she finished. What type of nutrition do you think was for her when she got done? A cold cup of coffee and probably a hard bagel. So are we taking care of people's nutrition? Oh gosh, coaches? He has full-time coaches. You know he has a strength and conditioning coach. Just standing up for almost an hour for a professional athletes hard. <laughs> so he has a strength and conditioning coach. How much are we out? How much are we on our feet? How much do we work? Cape um, Girardeau, Missouri got real lucky. They didn't have a YMCA, so the hospital built a fitness center attached to the hospital. And guess who they found out used to more than anybody else? The employees and the doctors. In fact, they they only allowed, they did two hours where it's only physicians. And the physicians found that that replaced the physician lounge it used to. You
0: know what else
1: he has? A sports psychologist. Because Jesse's going to have failure. Poor guy's going to strike out. When he goes to the dugout, he's going to need somebody to put him back together. So they explained to him how to handle failure. Do we have failure in healthcare? Do you think Pamela Hodel wanted my sister to die? After spending 13 and a half hours in surgery? After being with her at Moffitt for 90 days, trying to keep her alive? You don't think Pamela Hodel have a little bit of failure feeling? A little bit of grief feeling? Working with the children's hospital in um, Philadelphia, uh, after I got done, a doctor, infection control doctor, called me, said, Come with me. After I got done speaking, she went into her office. She said, I lose children. And she opened up a file cabinet and she pulled out a drawer of thank you notes that she's gotten over the years from parents. She said, well, I'm feeling low, I read. Make sure you read those notes and also make sure you send those notes. And it really comes back to values, doesn't it? It comes back to once we click, once we get something right, we can no longer not do it because we have to do it. Even when it's uncomfortable, even when it's a little bit painful. Um, my my um, son, years ago, and I'll finish here about a little late, I'm sorry, about two, three minutes. Um, I was working at Holy Cross Hospital in Chicago, and um, we went on a a camping trip. My wife, I, and Mallory and Mike, um, they're they're probably nine and seven, something like that. Um, We love the tent camp, so we got our our, our Dodge Caravan, 1985, 90 something thousand miles, and one more trip out of this baby. Um, We turned it into a conversion van. We put a cigarette lighter, TV, duct taped it to the um, yeah, back yeah. then to the things, and we yeah. headed for Denwood, South Dakota, Dakota in a tent camp. The whole way there, we're noticing the motorcycles, and we had yeah. missed the fact that we're going there the same week as the Sturgis Bike Rally. Sort of interesting. Okay, so so, so we get to this, this tent, tent, and we spent like five, five days tent camping, and the kids loved it. A little campground, Denwood Gulch. And, and the last day, we were leaving on Saturday to drive back to Chicago, 1995, and work in a Holy Cross hospital. Um, my daughter wanted to swim, so my wife got her in this little pool, this little fancy pool in the campground. Um, and my son wanted to play soccer, so we're kicking the soccer ball. And I remember I was going like, to call back to the hospital at three o'clock. This is before the phones we have today. So I went into like the campground laundry, convenience store, check-in place, and I'm on the phone, and, um, and I, I told I told Rishi to watch Mike and, and I put him in the fenced-in area by the pool. And I said, I'm going to make a phone call. I'll be right back. And he was kicking the ball because he didn't have a bathing suit on. And while I'm on the phone call, a man came in and said, Quick, call 911. A little boy's been crushed. And I knew that was my son. I had this unbelievable feeling it was my son. I walked out. My son was outside the pool area. Everybody was just screaming. It was pandemonium. My wife's saying there's no heartbeat, there's no pulse, and my son is laying there in the dirt gray. What happened is the ball he was kicking went over the fence. He went to get it. There was a gentleman in a 4,800-pound earth-moving podcat moving some dirt at the campground. The ball went in that area. Um, my son went to get it and bent down. These are hard to look out of. The guy who threw it in reverse and crushed him. So he had a crushed shoulder bleeding internally and the rib cage into his heart, okay? So, so of course, course the, the ambulance came, they, they loaded him up. My, my wife hopped in the, the ambulance. ambulance, I hopped the in the van. My, my daughter's daughter still in a bathing suit. suit. My, my wife's still in a bathing suit. suit. My my bathing suit. suit. Um, um, and, and we, we rushed, rushed to Deadwood Belt's 25-bed critical access hospital. hospital, okay? As soon as they saw him, and they transferred him to Rapid City, South Dakota, to a pediatric intensive care unit by the time i got there in the van with my daughter he'd probably been there already an hour hour and a half and i walked up to the pediatric icu and um he had everything all over him you know respirator catheter you could see the blood He trying to stop the internal bleeding and i asked my wife this question is mike gonna live and she said yes that was a mother reaction and I'm not understanding the clinical situation. So I started asking her some questions, and she said, the doctor just left and he's over there. Now, if your son was in this type of condition, what hospital would you want him in? Which one? The best. Wouldn't you want the best? would you want that? It's not about who owns you. It's not about are you for profit or not for profit. It's about the best. But, but your, your son can't be transferred. transferred. So, so your anxiety's through the roof. So I went up to the doctor and I introduced myself. And I don't know why, but I explained to him I was the Chief Operating Officer at Holy Cross Hospital in Chicago. And then I said, Doctor, um, where'd you go to medical school? And he said, I went to the University of Michigan Medical School. He said, and then I did a residency in Pediatrics. Then I did a two-year fellowship in Intensive Care of a double board certified physician in pediatrics and, and intensive care. Thank I said, is Mike going to live? He said, we won't Both go for the, the next, next 24 to 48 hours. We're going to do everything we can. I went back into my my son's room. I looked at my wife and I said, we're in the right place. So here's another message. Don't be afraid to tell people you know what you're doing. Don't be afraid to tell people that you're experienced. Don't be afraid to tell people the training you have. Because they're there anxious. I did this in Texas and a radiation oncologist told me that when he heard me talk about, tell, about yourself, that he thought he'd be bragging, but then he contacted me later and said he was wrong. He said the first patient he did he said I've been doing this for 22 years. I've treated people with your cancer condition all the time. He said the gentleman started crying. He thought it was just happen, so he, four patients later that patient started crying. He said the doctor told me that he started wanting to cry. He had not done this for his whole career of telling people how good they are. My son's alive today. He lives in Chicago. Um, um, But he's alive because of health care. He's alive because of caregivers. He's alive because of people. But one of the things I love is I felt my son was in the right house.